We solemnly swear we're up to no good. Hi, I'm Gary Roby. I'm Victoria Laguna. And we're the hosts of Harry Potter Minute, the fan podcast where we overanalyze the Harry Potter movies one magical minute at a time. Join us as we argue about whether or not McGonagall would meow at Dumbledore. She wouldn't. As we ponder just how much Harry's fortune is worth. Just $40. As we guess how much mileage one gets out of an Ollivander wand. 100,000 jinxes. As we detail the ins and outs of Hogwarts Castle. It's only a model. Join us Monday through Friday, only from DuelingGenre.com. Mischief Managed. Dueling Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joseph Dorowski, and this week I'm joined by Hannah Rogers to discuss Gwendolyn Harleth from the novel Daniel Deronda. Welcome, Hannah. Hi, thanks for having me. Always great to have a new guest on the Protagonist Podcast. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about you? Yeah, so uh, I am a graduate student at Duke University studying the long 19th century um, British literature. And I also am a co-host of the weekly podcast, Vox Popcast, which is a pop culture roundtable podcast. And we have had Mav from the Vox Popcast on over here as a guest several times. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I think I'm the token historical person on that. <laughs> well, I, I've bounced over to the Vox Popcast as well. So there's just a little, little podcast sharing of, of hosts happening here. Uh, for listeners who are not aware, Daniel Deronda is an 1876 novel written by George Eliot. It tells the story of Gwendolyn Harless' search for a for- firm moral and social footing in life, and Daniel Deronda's exploration of personal identity as formed through nurture, nature, religion, morality, and agency. How was that for a quick description of this novel? Uh, that is one way to put it, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's... This is not a short novel. No. Uh... <laughs> And there's a, there's a lot that happens. Uh, this was my first time reading any George Eliot, I think. But somehow I made it through an English major's degree without reading George Eliot, which seems criminal. But when I reached out to you, Hannah, and asked for uh, things you might want to come on the podcast to talk about, you had mentioned this. I was like, oh, great. That's a, a hole I've been meaning to fill. You know, check that box of reading something. Uh, and I really did enjoy it, but this was my first exposure to her writing style. Um, and I mean, I've read other British lit novels from this period, but this is my first time reading Daniel Deronda. Um, what is your familiarity or how did you come to Daniel Deronda? So actually I went through undergrad without reading any George Eliot, uh, which is kind of easy to do because her novels are generally long. And if you only take one, 19th century novel class I think a lot of people choose between Dickens and Eliot and the person who was teaching in my year uh chose Dickens because Dickens is awesome but uh uh I I read it my first year of graduate school at Duke and I actually wrote my first paper um for Duke uh on Daniel Deronda and I realized that Gwendolyn Harleth was probably the best character in all of literature which I feel like is a bold claim for this podcast uh and since then, I have lost the count of the number of times I've read this novel. So uh, if you look at the page count and then realize I've read it more than once, you're probably wondering what I do for a living. 
Well, it's study literature, which makes it much more expected that that is something you would do, right? Yeah. But, you know, this particular novel, though, is um, really interesting. And it's kind of atypical uh, in a lot of ways of George Eliot and literature of the period. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, there, there were definitely a few uh, choices made in the storytelling that I was not expecting, where I was kind of like, okay, we're going, we're going here for a little while. <laughs> Um, and, and we'll get to those when I get into the plot summary. Uh, but before we do that, some trivia. And uh, Hannah, this is much more your area of domain than mine. So feel free to jump in with any trivia you think needs to be mentioned. This is stuff I uh, looked up today in preparation for this podcast. Um, George Eliot, as many may know, was the pen name of Mary Ann Evans, an English novelist, poet, playwright, and journalist. And I also saw she did a whole bunch of translations of text yeah, from German she, into English. Yeah, she did like whole translations of Spinoza. Uh, she was really into him. Yeah, she seemed remarkably learned, I think is yes. a, a safe way to describe her. Yeah, she's she's like one so, of like the super smart women of the period, and she knows it. Yes, I, I, and you know what? I'm going to go ahead and say just a super super smart woman for any period. <laughs> just yeah. blanket statement. <laughs> she she was just seems to be an amazing woman. The the more I was looking into her life and her accomplishments. So she was born in 1819 and died in 1890. Uh, so in this period there were many women authors who were published under their own names, but there was um, a stigma that they wrote light romances and that was somewhat also perpetuated by Mary Ann Evans herself before she wrote novels. She wrote an essay titled Silly Novels by Lady Novelists. Um, and because of some of that uh, that stigma, she chose to publish under a male pen name. Yeah, George Eliot. I don't I want to speak in generality. She didn't really like other women doing the kind of work she was doing. Uh, as she got older, she got more conservative in her gender politics, actually. So it's kind of a weird dynamic. Okay. Like I said, this is definitely more your area. So feel free to jump in with any of those insights. There were a couple of lines uh, in Daniel Deronda where I felt like she was um, jabbing Jane Austen a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, like the first half of <laughs> Gwendolyn's story, which I guess we'll get into, is definitely jabbing at Jane Austen. But but even like there's one line where she like some people may say that any eligible man of wealth is looking for why I'm like oh you're, you've read Pride and Prejudice have you? Which, which you know a lot of Victorian um, uh, female authors really like to pick on Jane Austen like Charlotte Bronte also really hated Jane Austen uh, couldn't understand why on earth uh, people liked her novels uh, and called Jane Austen a very sensible lady but was like not a woman. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, but you know what? Jane Austen's doing fine. I'm not concerned about Jane Austen's <laughs> legacy or reputation based on these little jives that are coming from some of her contemporaries. Oh, yeah, she's fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> so George Eliot wrote seven novels. Daniel Deronda was her last. Um, and I just saw uh, a little bit of biographical information growing up. She was clearly smart, uh, but was considered unattractively plain. So her family made sure she got good education so that she could take care of herself. Because <laughs> they're like, marriage might not be in the cards for this one. And, uh, her father ran. And that, that was kind of true, but not exactly. Yeah, I, well, I've, I found out she had several relationships. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, life. she did. Uh, so her father ran a mill on an estate. So she was like, she wasn't 
upper class or even really upper middle class. Like, but because her father worked on this estate, she was allowed access to the estate's library. Um, and so she was very well read, um, even as her family. That was one of the ways the family found to make sure that she had a good education. After several of George Eliot's novels became popular, audiences started trying to find out who this George Eliot guy was. And this, I just saw this as like an aside, and it fascinated me. A man named Joseph Liggins claimed, oh, that's me. I'm George Eliot. And at that point, Marianne Evans said, no, no, I am the author behind George Eliot. Like, how presumptuous must this Joseph Liggins guy have been to think he could carry that off? Doesn't surprise me. So Hannah, just as someone who is more expert in this area, would you agree that George Eliot's Middlemarch is her most famous novel? Oh, it's absolutely her most famous novel. Is it her best novel? Like people claim, no, it is not. That's Daniel Deronda uh, for reasons <laughs> I guess I can get into later. But yeah, it's it's really good, actually. And if you like Jane Austen, uh, you would definitely like Middlemarch. Well, and I see Middlemarch on lists of like greatest novels ever written all the time. It's always yeah. it's always in there gets gets name checked but you prefer daniel deronda then yes uh like george Eliot has this tendency to write women and have them give up everything to marry a guy at the end and that happens in the middle of march and i'm not a huge fan mm. so that's fun a different course is chosen in and Daniel Deronda, spoiler. I'm about to read the whole plot summary, so it's not much yeah. of a spoiler. It's like a I mean, one-minute this, away spoiler. I, yeah, this whole show is basically spoilers. <laughs> yes. Um, so Daniel Deronda has been adapted uh, three times into film or television that I found. Maybe others, but these were the only ones I saw listed. It feels like something that should have been adapted way more often. It was adapted as a 1920 silent film, which I cannot imagine how they condensed this into the real count that they had for silent films and removed all the dialogue. I, I wanted to see that to understand how they addressed the scope of this. Uh, there was a 1970 BBC miniseries and then also a 2002 BBC miniseries. It just feels like there's got to be some prestige miniseries for PBS coming somewhere of Daniel Deronda. Oh, I'm sure they'll remake it in a couple years when they run out of Dickens and Elliot and Austin novels to remake again. Yeah, I mean, they, I, we're on the cycle, right? We're, we're, we're in the down period for the Austin because they did that whole wave of Austin adaptations like, what, five or ten years ago? Yeah, though they're doing Sanditon for PBS and ITV now, which is her unfinished novel about a like wannabe resort town. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that'll be interesting. And then there's going to be a new film version of Emma because we needed another one of those. Right. <laughs> they haven't already been like six, five. I, I don't know. A I don't, lot. I don't even lot. want to count. Between I think BBC also, and Hollywood. And also Bollywood, I think, has an adaptation of most of the Austin novels now. So there and, we are. Yeah. Uh, oh, and uh, there have also been doing their Dumas kick. So, you know, we're, we're going to be ready for, for another one. All right. Before we move on to the plot summary, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening. And we want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers or talk about TV shows or books that we have been watching or reading. And we also give updates on our fantasy box office. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So now, a long summary of Daniel Deronda, which is going to omit a lot of this <laughs> book. 
because I, I got it down to about two pages, uh, which I was pretty proud of. Uh, but there's just a lot in this book and I do recommend this book. I was, I, I did an audio version of it and, um, I was like, I let all my podcasts pile up while I was listening to it. Cause I'm like, I gotta keep listening to this. Not cause I've got the podcast to record it. It's cause like, Oh, this is really good. This is quality writing. All right. Uh, Gwendolyn Harleth is vacationing with wealthy relatives and gambling. She's doing well, but she senses a man looking at her. And once she knows that she's being watched, she starts losing. She had been winning uh, everything and suddenly she loses. Later, she finds out that the man who had been watching her is named Daniel Deronda. She gets a letter from her mom telling her that she must rush home because her family has lost their income due to some bad investments. Guilty about gambling away her winnings the night before Gwen, uh, that night, Gwendolyn pawns some jewelry so that she'll have more money to take home. Later, a parcel is delivered to her room, and it has her recently pawned necklace in it. And she is sure that Daniel Deronda must be the one who brought the necklace back uh, and, and returned it to her, even though it was done anonymously. We flash back to one year earlier, earlier, and Gwendolyn's stepfather has died. Gwendolyn, her mother, and uh, her almost never mentioned sisters move to her aunt's uh, near her aunt's family. Gwendolyn is often praised and given what she wants, and is the center of attention. She fancies she could be a singer or an actress if she tried her hand at it, but her mother gently hints that probably not. A musician named Klezmer also says that she has ordinary talent which bothers her because she always thought she had extraordinary talent. While there, Gwendolyn's cousin Rex falls in love with Gwendolyn, but she mostly ignores his advances, and eventually he takes the hint and leaves town. And I mean, eventually. It takes him a long while <laughs> to catch on that she is not interested. Like, he has to get thrown from a horse and and almost die and not have her notice before he says, wait a second, she might not love me the way I love her. The men in this novel are not very bright. <laughs> yeah. Um, a very prospective match named Sir, Sir Grandcourt, which bravo on that naming, <laughs> George Eliot. <laughs> Sir Grandcourt comes uh, to the nearby Diplo Hall, and Grandcourt does, n- does like the look of Gwendolyn, and he plans to ask her to marry her. Courtship in these is always just so weird, where it's like they see each other, and they're like, yes, <laughs> that's the one, and that's it. They're, they're going to propose now. Uh, Grandcourt has this lackey, a man named Lush, who does not like this plan because Gwendolyn has no fortune. And Grandcourt has been living as though his income is guaranteed, but it's not really as guaranteed as it might be. So Gwendolyn is sure that a proposal is imminent, but then she receives a letter asking her to go and meet someone secretly. And she does this, and it's a woman named Lydia, who reveals that she is Grandcourt's mistress and that she has had four children by him. Gwendolyn promises not to marry Grandcourt and leaves. And now we're going to go learn some about Daniel Deronda. You may have forgot this book is called Daniel Deronda. So let's touch on that, that character. Uh, Daniel was raised by Sir Hugo, and he doesn't know who his parents are. Eventually, in his adolescence, he starts to think, I might be Sir Hugo's illegitimate son, <laughs> because that seems to be a thing that's done. Uh, so one day, while he's walking by a river, uh, this is when he's now a little bit older, he's an adult, he sees a woman who's about to drown herself, and he intervenes and saves her. He takes a woman named Myra to some friends so that she can have a job with them and find some more happiness and not feel the need to commit suicide. Myra is a young Jewish girl whose father had been about to sell her as a mistress to a European noble so that he could pay off some gambling debts. She ran away and was going to kill herself, and that's when Daniel found her. Now we're going to jump back to Gwendolyn. Her family situation is now even worse. Uh, They had been relying on the generosity of her uncle, but his finances are troubled too. Gwendolyn is told that she must go find work as a governess. And that does not sound good to her at all. This is not the life that she'd been led to believe that she was destined for. Uh, 
in order to try and avoid becoming a governess, she goes back to her friend. Uh, what was his name? I, I spelled it here. The there it is, Klesmer. And she uh, asks him, "Hey, you're a professional musician. I think I could make it as a professional singer." And he tries to let her down as gently as he can and tell her that no, that is not an option for you. I have seen you sing and act. Mm -mm. Uh, and even though he's trying to be as nice as he possibly can, but ensure that she understands this really is not a life that she is meant for. Uh, this blow really does hurt her pride. Uh, and eventually she decides, all right, I'm going to go meet with a, uh, a potential family about becoming their governess. Grandcourt hears about Gwendolyn's family's new misfortune, and he returns and proposes marriage. And though she planned to refuse him, the thought of a comfortable life for her and her mother and those barely mentioned sisters makes Gwendolyn agree to marry Grandcourt. On her wedding day, uh, Lydia, who is Grandcourt's mistress, she sends Gwendolyn a necklace that Grandcourt had given to Lydia. Uh, and, but along with this necklace, she includes a note that curses Gwendolyn forever for having married Grandcourt. <laughs> and Gwendolyn finds this to be a bad omen about her marriage. And it turns out that marriage to Grandcourt isn't great. He's cold, distant, and very controlling. Uh, well, I guess to control it... It's an interesting kind of controlling. It's not like he dictates what she does, but he wants her to know that he always knows exactly what she's doing, I guess. And yeah, it, so controlling maybe isn't just the right word, but it's just not a happy marriage. Um, and when eventually Gwendolyn does show a little defiance, um, Lush, uh, Grandcourt's lackey, he shows up and shows Gwendolyn that in Grandcourt's will, she's going to be left without much income at all if Grandcourt dies and that Gwendolyn hasn't produced a male heir. In that event, most of his money is going to go to his illegitimate son. And Gwendolyn talks. Um, at, at this time, Daniel Deronda starts being around, um, and Gwendolyn talks with him at several social settings, and Deronda is becoming something of a moral and spiritual guide for her. Um, it feels kind of flirtatious, but there's no romantic discussion really between them at all. Uh, but finally, Grandcourt has been watching this and he says, you know what, Gwendolyn, you and I are going to go sail the Mediterranean. And they do that. Meanwhile, Daniel, uh, has become very interested in Myra and Myra mentions that she has a memory of her brother Ezra and Daniel Deronda starts visiting Jewish communities to look for her missing brother. Many of the Jews asks if he ask if he is one of their people and Deronda starts to wonder about who his mother might have been. Uh, and he also becomes very interested in learning about Jewish history and religion and their language. And he meets a man named Mordecai. And after some very long conversations, <laughs> He realizes that Mordecai's real name is Ezra and that this is Myra's missing brother. And now Mordecai, even amongst the Jewish community, has is like an outsider amongst the Jewish community because of some of his ideas about uh, a Jewish state and his ideas about um, just just politics for the Jewish community um, is, is kind of extreme for a lot of the Jews among whom Daniel has been uh, visiting uh, at this time. And Daniel gets Myra and Mordecai uh, to meet up and it is a happy reunion even though Mordecai is ailing and likely to die sometime soon. But for this next window of time that they have, Myra and Mordecai are going to be living together. So Sir Hugo, and that is the man who raised Daniel, Deronda, says that Daniel's mother wants to meet him, but he needs, uh, Daniel's going to have to sail to Genoa to do it. Daniel does this, and when he meets his mother, she reveals that one, she's dying, but she never would have been a good mother to him, so don't get worked up about that, son. Uh, and two, <laughs> Daniel's dad was also Jewish. And when Daniel's dad died, Sir Hugo fell in love with Daniel's mom. And Daniel's mom, seeing this, asked Sir Hugo to raise Daniel Deronda so that Daniel would not face the prejudice that most Jews faced at the time. Um, 
when he ha- so so Daniel's traveled to go see his mom and in his travels he sees Gwendolyn and Grandcourt uh but they don't speak at this time Grandcourt takes Gwendolyn sailing so that she can't meet up with Daniel Deronda later Daniel sees a commotion on the shore and he hears people talking about a sailing accident and that there's one survivor and he fears that Grandcourt killed Gwendolyn but the sailors bring Gwendolyn to the shore and in what I found to be a much too long conversation Gwendolyn talks to Daniel about her guilt over what happened out at sea and he is worried that she has killed her husband but eventually after so long we find out that she just feels guilty because she wanted her husband to die but she didn't actually do anything to him it really was just an accident out on the water but she's so guilty because she she was thinking I'd be fine if he died out here and then he did relieved Daniel gets word to Gwendolyn's family about what happened and he's very relieved that she is not a murderer Uh, eventually everyone goes back to England and Rex Gwendolyn's cousin who loved her back at the very beginning of the novel is very interested in the news of high court uh, of um, grand court's death and Gwendolyn is interested uh, in Daniel but Daniel uh, goes to Myra and reveals that he's Jewish and he proposes to her Gwendolyn is heartbroken about this uh, because she, Gwendolyn was starting to have ideas about her and Daniel Deronda. But when her mother consoles Gwendolyn, Gwendolyn says, it's all right, I'm going to live. Uh, and then uh, Daniel and Myra get married and she and Daniel plan to go for, uh, work on forming a Jewish homeland. They want to go uh, out to the Jewish diaspora uh, in, in throughout Europe and talk about the idea of creating a Jewish political state somewhere. And that is the end of the novel. There's some hints that Gwendolyn may, and, and Rex might get together, but it's, it's not wrapped uh, up for you at all. I don't, I don't think they ever will. It's not going to happen. You know, no, so? I, I think Rex, Rex would want to, but I don't know that Gwendolyn has any Gw- interest there. There's, there's a line in the novel uh, that when Rex puts his advances on Gwendolyn, she hardens like a sea anemone and like it, she curls up on into herself. Honestly... <laughs> Honestly, I, do I don't know if Gwendolyn has any feelings of like physical attraction toward any man in this novel, or if she has any interest in ever being married to anyone. Uh, there's like, there's no discussion of like striking features or anything like that, that you see often in, in romance novels from this like, period. In, uh, even when she like if you say that she's interested in daniel and that is true but as you said at the beginning summary uh they like they don't really flirt so much as like talk about moral and spiritual things and even when elliot uh mm-hmm. talks about uh like love between uh deronda and Gwendolyn, what she says is so potent in us is the infused action of another soul before which we bow in complete love. But the new existence seemed inseparable from Deronda. The hope seemed to make his presence permanent. It was not her thought that he loved her and would cling to her. A thought that would have tarred with improbability. It was her spiritual breath. So it's not even like they're in love and want to get married. It's they're just super into like spiritual things with each other. And when Daniel and Gwendolyn part, he's like, I'm going to write to you. And you'll write back, right? And so she like sends him a note on his wedding day about being better and doing better. Um, so they're gonna like keep in contact, maybe sorta. And I think that's the best possible ending she could ever have because she doesn't have to deal with any nineteenth century man. Which, I mean, they weren't great. <laughs> 
Well, I think one thing that I saw in Gwendolyn, and, and it definitely lines up with what you're saying, she was not interested in romantic love. Like there's that that doesn't seem to be something that she's seeking out. Um and and the marriage with Grandcourt is never treated romantically like like any of the the parts where you might think oh there'll be a build up here like it's like no he proposed and then it's like oh they actually got married i was expecting some you know some hiccups or something but nope they just got married and then she's unhappy <laughs> that's that's about yeah. how it goes she, i mean she's very ambitious and wants like a passionate career in acting singing though that's not her forte and she's not as good as she thinks she is and although readers might think oh she's spoiled she needs to become a governess and get over herself Ah, nobody wants to be a governess. Being a governess would suck. Jane Fairfax <laughs> and uh, Austin's Emma compares it to the slave trade. Um, that's how much she hates it. Jane Eyre does not have a good time. Governesses uh, at the time were kind of in between servants and members of the household. So they didn't have a place. They didn't really have friends. You know, you, you got stuck with bratty children. It wasn't a good time. You weren't paid super great. Uh, so of course she doesn't want to be a governess. She just wants to live with her mom and sisters and hang out by the end of the novel and make sure they have a home, which is not, you know, a bad character arc. Uh, no, uh, like that, that idea of, um, settling in with her mom and sisters, that is definitely a transition from where we see her at the beginning, uh, at the beginning, like she, she, is trying to be nice to her sisters, but is pretty bratty towards the towards them. Yeah, and and she strangles about... her canary. <laughs> that was a, that was a flashback to her childhood, right? That she strangled her sister's uh, canary. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, yeah. She the thing about Gwendolyn is is like she's not like there's there's like you know a good girl bad girl dynamic, and she has some characteristics of a bad girl, but she's, she's a complicated character. So like she strangles her sister's canary and she realizes that was a bad thing. So she buys her sister a, a mouse to like help ease the guilt and feel better. And of course, like I'm not saying it's okay to strangle pets, but <laughs> she's, she's not a complete psychopath. And you know, she, she like imagines grand court dying and keeps a knife under her pillow later on in the novel. So she does have some violent tendencies, but also grand court is horrible to her and Lydia. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you, if you are in her position and you're in an unhappy marriage and you're being controlled, uh, perhaps it's not as crazy as one might think to wish that your tormentor would die. Yeah, it's oh, he Grandcourt is just so unlikable as a human being. Um, he's so dismissive of anyone else, uh, and so, uh, like it, it's a self centeredness, but it's also it feels almost like a lazy self centeredness. <laughs> like he's, he's like just Gwendolyn so has a very creepy. active, yeah, but Gwendolyn has like a very active self centeredness. Yeah. Like she wants to be out and she wants to perform and she wants others to see her. She wants um, to be noticed. And with, um, with Grandcourt, it's just like uh, there, there's an arrogance that's so casual uh, in in 
in his actions and his attitudes that's just so off-putting uh to read about and to read these descriptions of him and his relationship with Gwen uh with with everyone I guess yeah like you said with Lydia as well with everyone he's 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 like so cold-blooded uh he's you know he's described ripped as a reptile or like reptilian like he he just he's so interesting because like so many villains uh that we think of are like active mustache twirlers and he just has things so controlled in his domain uh and just is menacing in his own presence that you aren't always quite sure just how awful he is it's like a lot of the text is implied so that makes Mm -hmm. him even creepier right because you can fill in the gaps with bad imaginings (laughs) right (laughs) uh yeah the the implicitness of some of some of his actions is there but like anytime he's in the room just some i I can't think of how the description happens that it does this but you just even even when george elliott isn't writing about him you kind of feel his presence um in all those drawing room scenes after they're married right yeah i mean i mean he's always a psychological shadow on her mind so there's no escape from him I mean, even whenever, like, she, like, her biggest act of defiance, besides imagining him to die and putting a knife under a pillow, is to, like, put the bracelet Daniel bought for her uh, at the beginning of the novel. Well, the the necklace that he he bought for her at the beginning of the novel. She turns it into a bracelet and wraps it around her arm to, like, flash Daniel a signal that she wants to talk to him. And that's, like, the furthest she dares go. Which is not a terribly bold move or transgressive. But but then, like, as soon as uh he feels like she is starting to be too independent he's like okay we're off to the mediterranean we're going we're going sailing now and and, well he says something like i'm going to go sailing and she's like okay and he's like and you're going with me and then she's kind of mortified at this idea um so the novel is called daniel deronda and when i started listening to the audiobook version i kind of kept waiting for daniel to appear i mean he's there at the very (laughs) beginning in the gambling scene and then it's an awful lot of Gwendolyn, which I'm not, I'm not saying that's like a fault in the novel. Cause the Gwendolyn stuff is very interesting. It just made for a very interesting engagement with the text because with the title, I just expected him to be so much more prominent. Uh, and then even when we get to this, you know, his backstory and then particularly when he's um, entering the Jewish community and starting to like talk in these Zionist ways, like there's just a lot of, um, like the narrative kind of stops to do these philosophical uh, debates about politics and identity um, and all these other things. And, and the story kind of stops and I'm kind of like, what? Like, like the just George Eliot calling this novel Daniel Deronda to me uh, was, it was, it was a little confusing. Like it just made for a little bit of a confusing experience getting into it. Yeah. Uh, actually some fun trivia about that. Um, F.R. Levis, who is kind of like a foundational novel studies person, depending on what you read, wrote a book called The Great Tradition, where he basically talked about how Austin, Eliot, and um, Henry James were the great British authors, which is hilarious, because Henry James is not really British, but that's fine. I was going to um, say, I teach him in American lit. <laughs> yeah, I think the Victor- for whatever reason, the Victorianists and... The Americanists fight over him as far as I'm concerned. The Americanists could have him. Uh, I was going to say he could go. I wouldn't mind. <laughs> side, side note, uh, Henry James really admired this novel and Gwendolyn as a character. So he based um, Isabel Archer, the story goes, on Gwendolyn um, in Portrait of a Lady. I can, 
I can see that. Uh, but uh, Levis wrote in the, the Great Tradition how much he loved Gwendolyn in Down Deronda and how it would be a perfect novel if you just split uh, the novel in half and took out all the Daniel part. And he wanted to call the revision Gwendolyn Harleth. And apparently he later tried to do that, but no one would publish it because the plots actually like don't make sense without each other. Like um, you can't excise Daniel Deronda entirely. Apparently he tried, unless he showed up for Gwendolyn's <laughs> bit. Uh, and actually, uh, in the Victorian era, there were several writers um, who were upset about the fact that Daniel and Gwendolyn didn't get together and that Daniel was Jewish because they were anti-Semitic. And they wrote fa- basically what amounts to fan fiction, um, where like Daniel ditches Mira or she dies, and he and Gwendolyn end up getting together. I have a question. And- yeah? For these fan fiction writers, did they not like like they're writing their fan fiction novels because they're fans of Daniel Deronda. Did they not understand that this is condemning anti-Semitism? The, I that's what part of what they were mad about because like uh you know the end of novels in the 19th century when there's a marriage a lot of the times it's about solidifying nationality. Like if you look at something like Sir Walter Scott, the hero marries someone who like is like a good English girl or something and like will unite the country or like Austin in Prime Prejudice. The the marriage between Darcy and Elizabeth like shows what a new kind of England looks like in the changing early 19th century, late 18th century, depending on how you want to read that. Daniel Deronda, Daniel marries the Jewish girl, becomes Jewish himself and like goes to form a Jewish state. If he had stayed in England and married Gwendolyn, it would have been the typical kind of novel, nation-building, some kind of new England. And they don't like the fact that that's not what happened. And they would have also, I would imagine, have... What was the name of the foppish friend of Daniel Deronda um, that was in love with Myra? Hans. Hans. They would have had Hans marry uh, Myra and convert her to Christianity, right? That would have been, I would imagine, in some of these fan fictions. Yes. uh, Like, or... uh, Well, like... You know, since they like are sequel fan fictions, there's one like called Gwendolyn Reclaimed that you can read on Google Books. I don't recommend it. Um, It literally like kind of systematically goes point by point and undoes every bit of George Eliot's ending, um, including like. Oh, this sounds like Star Wars fanboys who are angry at The Last Jedi. Yeah, including like. So like Mordecai is like Daniel's spiritual mentor throughout the novel and teaches him about Judaism and takes him into like public spaces, like the hand and banner uh, where he can talk to other members of the Jewish community and hear different points of view. In Gwendolyn Reclaimed, Daniel gets a new English mentor who also, if I'm not mistaken, is Gwendolyn mother's old love. So like everyone can get paired off by the end and Daniel comes back at the end of Gwendolyn Reclaimed and finds Gwendolyn, who's like crying and about to die because she can't stand to live without a man. And he decides to marry her and it's fine. So, yeah, there's this whole history of people who can't deal with Daniel Deronda, uh, either for Daniel Deronda or Gwendolyn not ending up with someone because it's so weird. And there's a lot of scholars uh, who, when they analyze this novel, either talk about Gwendolyn solely or Daniel Deronda solely um and they sometimes only talk about politics in terms of daniel deronda and say oh well Gwendolyn's story doesn't really matter it's more of a domestic thing so 
So how do you think that these two stories should like how how should our understanding blend them because it does feel fairly distinct and i understand the move that uh, it seems like people going back to when it was first published uh want to make of, of kind of saying like these these two plots don't feel like they belong in the same story to a certain degree and i i i say that acknowledging that i understand why levis would have had trouble completely excising daniel Duranta because he is kind of uh, a key figure in gwendolyn's transformation yeah, so uh, George Eliot herself said everything in this novel is connected to everything else. So, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do to link these plots together. Um, although, you know, being Jewish is different than being a woman, uh, Daniel and Gwendolyn both have marginalized identities in Victorian society. And they both need to figure out ways that they can like form their own communities because both of them want to do things that are atypical of what is expected of them throughout the novel. Uh, it's also kind of strange, actually, that Elliot kind of, you know, implies that Daniel and Mira at the end are going to go build a national community for the Jews or at least talk to people and like form some connections. But he hasn't really done anything yet. And Gwendolyn talks about, you know, forming a female community with her mother and sisters. And she hasn't really done anything yet. Um, and yet a lot of people are like, Daniel has this grand national project, but Elliot doesn't, isn't able to kind of conceive of what comes next. Cause she's like imagining a future that's kind of beyond her time. I would think um, you can also. Start- yeah. Like that's a yeah. big step that's about to be taken. And it's just kind of like, and off he goes. <laughs> and good luck daniel uh with that there were uh, some descriptions of like the anti-semitism or were like remarkably prescient for events that were gonna be happening in the future like um daniel's mother when explaining why she wanted him to be raised as an englishman and not as a, as a jewish man uh she says like people look at us like we're tattooed and they can see what we are <laughs> you know like that like it's on our skin and i was just like oh that that's that line reads very differently for a reader now than it would have for a reader in the 1800s. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of Daniel's mother, uh, Daniel's mother was a famous singer um, before she had to retire. Uh, And Gwendolyn of course wants to be a singer. And the reason why Daniel's mother isn't like, thinks she won't be like a super great mom is because she wanted a career. Uh, And, while Gwendolyn didn't have the talent to do what Daniel's mother did, there's also like, you know, the question of like womanhood, especially in relation to like Judaism, because uh, all for, for all of Elliot's like anti prejudice, like language and her descriptions and like the politics she takes, she also does fall into some like anti Semitic tropes when describing some of the Jewish characters who are not Mordecai or Mira. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, you know, like Mira at the beginning of the novel is stuck with her father, who is a bad guy who keeps constantly trying to sell her to men. Uh, Gwendolyn herself kind of sells herself to Grand Court. Mira, oh, when? When, she, when she marries him, um, you know, because he's giving her money and her family's comfortable. Uh, Daniel's mother, uh, you know, uh, had like part of the reason why she doesn't want to be Jewish is because her father was like super hard on her uh, and wanted her to be traditional. Yeah, definitely like the self-loathing Jewish stereotype is very yes. present there. 
Uh, um, and and then uh, when the father comes back, it's it, it felt like almost uh, what's uh, Fagin from Dickens, yes. like the level of descriptions uh, that that um, that their father had was it, it was like oh okay this is just it felt a little out of place for all the long monologues from Mordecai and others about Jewish identity and everything. Then you get like you're saying this this figure that feels. Um, like a pulpy Jewish stereotype from a different kind of novel. Yeah. Um, and even the family that Mordecai lives with, who takes care of him before Dano finds him, is described in kind of stereotypical terms. Um, and, and, you know, actually, like, national stereotyping is, like, a big part of this novel and, like, what na- national identity is, not just in terms of being Jewish or English, but at the gambling table in the first scene of the novel that opens when Daniel's looking at Gwendolyn, he's, you know, asking a question, is she beautiful or is she not? Um, and then he like starts looking at everyone else and starts categorizing them. And he's like, Oh, you are, you are Italian. You are Spanish. I can just tell based on your physical attributes and how you carry yourself. And when he later goes to the hand and banner um, to talk to the other Jews, he is able to put them in specific categories about their heritage based on looking at them. So there's a lot of obsession of like your ancestry and like where you come from in this novel. Which uh, that is very much of the time and place when the novel was being, being written. Um, The, you know, the ideas, I mean, this would have been in the same era when like you're seeing the rise of, um, Oh, what's the science of like facial structure revealing identity? Uh, oh, science, like in quotation marks, pseudoscience. Phrenology. Yeah, like you're phrenology, measuring your head. Yeah, like yeah. This, it, yeah, this it, it's it's in that era, and the idea is that um, these national characteristics are inherent to basically the genetic makeup of, of people who come from different regions. Um, that was just an accepted truth. Like I, I say science in quotation marks, but it was accepted as science science Yeah, I, um, for, I, for a while there. I originally read this novel alongside a lot of Victorian anthropology when the field was first emerging, uh, which was uh, in like the sixties and seventies. And it's, like I want to assure everyone that Victorian anthropology is super racist, but if you just you know take <laughs> passages from uh, an armchair Victorian anthropologist and they're describing like people from across the world in various stereotypes, and then you take passages from Daniel Deronda where he's profiling people, they read very similarly. So, so moving away from the pseudoscience, um, there for me one of the most interesting things about this book to think about is the level of transformation that we get in Gwendolyn because in some ways she begins as this single woman who is living with her mother and her sisters and they're kind of financially strapped and she ends as a single woman living with her mother and sisters and they're kind of financially strapped. But obviously there's you know hundreds of pages of difference uh between the beginning and end so what do you think are some of the the most significant transformations that we see for Gwendolyn Harleth so uh I've already talked a little bit about how she actually by the end of the novel genuinely wants to live with her mothers and sisters and provide for them um and how at the beginning she is kind of selfish and she but she does like it's complicated because she isn't just totally like i am i am so important i am great and i hate everyone else she genuinely loves her family she just doesn't like to be inconvenienced and 
throughout the novel, she learns to not be so selfish because she goes through great suffering. It's not a George Eliot novel if you don't suffer because George Eliot thinks that suffering builds character. Um, I mean, this isn't like Thomas Hardy level of suffering. Yeah, well, you <laughs> know, she she doesn't die, so <laughs> yeah. that's that's good. Um, but yeah, George George Eliot uh, thinks that suffering builds character. Uh, even like her favorite characters that she thinks are morally good, like Mordecai, are clearly suffering because you know he has a chronic illness that eventually will kill him. Uh, Gwendolyn also, you know, re- like she. At the beginning of the story, she tells her mother that it would have been better if she had not married Gwendolyn's stepfather and looks down upon marriage in sort of vague terms. But then she actually goes through that and realizes exactly how bad things could be. Because, you know, she was willing at the beginning of the novel to get married. And she was, like, kind of taught, like, oh, you're very, very pretty. You can make a good match. And she initially wanted to attract Grand Court until she realized that he was skeevy and had, you know, a mistress and was gross. So she also like, you know, she's also more interested in the spiritual and isn't so prejudiced as she was at the beginning because when Daniel reveals that he's Jewish, she doesn't care. He's the same person to her who's guided her throughout this. Well, she does briefly, and then says, "Never mind." Yeah, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> well, she, she. I mean, it's not perfect because it's Victorian, but you know, she she learns. She she is better. Yeah. Um. So, I, I mean, she's she's just such a complex character that I think a lot of like the statements you say about her is like, oh, she like. She's kind of, you know, frightened and hysterical. Um, at the beginning of the novel, she's like giving a performance and she's scared by a face that pops out um, of a clock, I think. Or that, that moves and... Uh, no, it's it's behind a... Uh, yeah, like there's a yeah. painting behind a, a yeah, shutter yeah, yeah. kind of is what it's... Yeah, yeah, and it's revealed. And she's, she's frightened by it. And then you actually like see like these kind of hysterical moments not to fall into that language, but it's kind of implied that she's hysterical uh, in the Victorian stereotype, but it's not like she's in a Gothic novel um, or a sensation novel, which at the time was a big genre that's kind of half horror, half like detective fiction. Uh, she and she ends up kind of killing someone with her mind, maybe possibly. We don't know. Uh, George Eliot's very good at ambiguity. Yeah, and so I've been, I've been teaching an American lit course uh, while reading or li- listening to this, and we were talking about the transition from um, American like Gothic romanticism into realism. And this book kind of feels like it's mostly realism, but there's still a few threads of gothic romanticism running through uh some of the like the ideas about destiny and the connections uh that people have and the uh like you said maybe killed someone with her mind like she feels guilty that she may have killed someone with her mind like that all feels very gothic romantic and not realist but then a lot of the drawing room moments that's all like classic realism yeah um i i think that like george Eliot is kind of a good transition author to go from someone like 
Wilkie Collins to Thomas Hardy, who also kind of plays with some of these ideas. Though he's more of a naturalist, but, you know, what does genre mean anyway? <laughs> yes. Uh, in addressing how there's the Dan- Daniel Deronda plots and the Gwendolyn Harleth plots, is there one that for you resonates more? Or that, like, even though we're saying, yes, these are, you, you can't really separate them fully, but is there one where you're like, ah, this is the section I'm here for? Uh, I, I really just love little moments with Gwendolyn because I, I kind of feel like we all as human beings are more like her than we want to admit. Um, because like who hasn't done bad things, but felt bad about it, but also kind of like, you know, messes up and does something bad again. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, and I like Daniel Duranda's like guidance to her isn't, like you're not condemned because you made a mistake. And in fact, the, the very idea that you feel bad about the mistake that you've made means that you're growing, right? Like the, the, if, if you were, uh, had like no conscience about the mistakes that you've made, that would be more problematic than having made a mistake and now regretting the mistakes that you've made. Yeah. She, it's just, you know, she's just so interesting and I, I think relatable and Daniel, I don't dislike Daniel, but and his his advice is not as, you know, awful and like talk downy as Mr. Knightley to Emma or something, but he sometimes he just goes on his like moral rants and it's like, okay, buddy. I've I've read Kant too. It's fine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I agree. Like uh as I was listening, some of the Daniel Duranda, like I, I think I said it in the summary, like it feels like the plot stops for a little sermon or uh, or a philosophical idea or a political speech in the Daniel Duranda sections. Uh, and so, which doesn't mean that those are like bad. It's just when I'm in the novel, I'm like, I, I was waiting for the plot thread to be picked up again. And it kind of paused on a lot of it, more often in the Daniel Duranda sections than in the Gwendolyn section. Yeah. You, you have to really invest in those sections. And I, I think uh second time around reading the novel, I appreciated them more because the first time around, I just wanted to find out what happened. And yeah, <laughs> and uh, whenever you like want to read through an 800 page book very, very quickly, when Mordecai starts going on about how like souls are reborn and born to find each other again and again, it's like, okay, thank you. Next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I felt some of that in the audiobook. I was like, okay, how long is this chapter? Like, is it just going to be? <laughs> What are they like opening up the app? I'm like, okay, it says it's a 45 minute chapter. <laughs> uh, but you never know when it's going to, you know, make, make a move uh, on, on uh, again, like picking up some of the plot threads that I was uh, waiting to see. Like you said, like, I just want to see what happens. Like I had no idea, uh, you know, how this was all going to shake out. And I, I found myself uh, unlike the fan fiction writers of the 1800s. Like I was like, I, I don't think I want Daniel and Gwendolyn to get together. Like I, I, I think I would have been dissatisfied with if that had been the conclusion it would have felt um maybe a little too neat to like tie up everyone coupling off like you could see like the opportunities for some couplings for every you know for all the main characters were there and it i i was actually a little happier that george Eliot didn't you know pair them all off conveniently uh it felt like a bolder move uh, yeah, to like, do what she did uh there's actually um 
a novel that was released a couple years ago called Gwendolyn that retells Daniel Deronda through her side of the story and then like goes on with her life after where she like I think even beats George Eliot at one point um in the in the novel and like lives and like becomes a suffragette and I didn't finish reading it because it portrays Gwendolyn as way more whiny than she actually is and it was very annoying um but you know, you can, you can, ima- the point is you can kind of, you know, imagine Gwendolyn going on and like doing things like maybe, uh, you know, being political. And she just, she didn't want marriage to begin with. She was very bored with it. Not everyone needs to get married. It's fine. Also, I couldn't imagine her being yeah. a mother. I don't think she can imagine herself being a mother either. I don't, I mean gotta say this book doesn't have a whole lot of good role models for what a good mother is gonna look like and i feel confident saying gwendolyn would not have broken that i mean mold. you know i think even though a lot of this novel is about altruism and looking beyond oneself i think that you can also like read when you like look at these plots that you know sometimes it's okay to be a little selfish and like follow what you want to do and not do the thing that society expects you to, which, you know, stereotype of the Victorian novel is go be an angel at the house, live in a domestic space, have many children. And uh, your husband needs to be engaged in yeah. politics. right? Especially if your name is Daniel Deronda, which I guess he eventually does kind of do politics, but not the politics Sir Hugo wanted him to do. No. <laughs> All right. Do you have any final thoughts about uh, the novel Daniel Deronda or the character of Gwendolyn Harleth? Uh, I I appreciate that George Eliot uh, wrote her as complexly as she did, but at times I think Eliot uh, is kind of mean to Gwendolyn um, and is actually kind of ambivalent about her own character. Um, so that's actually kind of interesting to read. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, if you if you enjoy uh, 19th century novels that, you know, are more often read, like Middlemarge, like anything with Austen, like Jane Eyre, you'll still like Daniel Deronda, but it also gives you, like, something new that, you know, gestures toward something more modern and contemporary as well. Yeah, I was um, impressed with George Eliot and how uh fully developed the character of Gwendolyn was and how like motivations for both her positive and negative attributes were always there uh so that you understand why she's acting the way she's acting even if you're kind of like don't act that way you you can see where this is coming from and it's not just um you know the i I mentioned like in the short summary like this in some ways this book is this uh you know exploring personal identity through nature, nurture, religion, morality, and agency. Uh, I, I put that under the Daniel Deronda side, but I think some of that is also under the Gwendolyn where like her, the aspects of her character are definitely coming through that feel like this is just who she is, but others where you're like, you see all the outside forces that have made her into that as well. Uh, and then she's going on this personal exploration of um, how those aspects of her are going to interplay to make a new version of herself that we have yeah and i also like appreciate that uh you know some victorian novels like jane eyre obviously gesture toward the colonies and empire and things outside of england um but they don't necessarily like engage in it or sometimes they try to mask that that is what keeps 
the country house going. But Daniel Deronda and George Eliot are really interested in empire and, you know, the greater world, especially with the Jewish plot. But there's also like allusions to the Civil War in America and the, you know, rebellion in Jamaica. So it's it's also a really interesting and u- unique read that way as well. All right. Well, Hannah, when we have first time guests on the protagonist podcast, because this is a podcast about great characters and great stories, we like to uh, ask you the dinner guest question. If you could have a dinner party with any three or five fictional characters just to hang out with for an evening, who would you invite over just to sit back and enjoy their conversation with them? Okay. Uh, So I would obviously pick Gwendolyn um, because as I said, probably like five times, she is my all time favorite character in literature and i think she'd just be fun to talk to uh sit down you know have a drink here about her life uh i also think that she'd get along well with eleanor shellstrop from the good place who <laughs> i feel like would also really liven up party if she didn't steal all the shrimp first um <laughs> i just imagining those two in a room together <laughs> and and the different ways they would both be playing for the spotlight and uh, trying to be the center of attention. I think uh, there's something there. I, I, th- I like those two picks a lot. And then I would pick Princess Leia um, or General Leia, depending on you know which version you want. I think that'd be interesting because I think she would bring some order to the room, but also I think she'd be amused. Um, and then I would pick Miss Haversham from Great Expectations. Uh, I assume she'd bring the cake. Um, I don't know if I'd eat the cake. Yeah, I was uh, say, would you want that cake? But I, if I, any of our listeners aren't familiar with Miss Havisham from Great Expectations, can you, can you explain this character? Who okay. is one of the strangest characters in all of literature? Uh, now, like, I, I don't understand yes. how this character is part of our literary canon, but she is, uh, and it's great that she is. She is not the weirdest character Dickens came up with. I will first say, but um, so she is a wealthy spinster and she was jilted at the altar and she like continues wearing her wedding dress. Um, and so she like has adopted a girl named Estella and she treats her to hate men because she's mad that she was jilted at the altar. So like, uh, yeah, it's creepy. Um, so she like seeks to do her revenge. And on she men. keeps her house in the wedding party. Yeah. Like her, she lives on the wedding night, uh, you know, the, the, like you said, the cake is still there and everything. It's just cobwebs over everything. Yeah. So that's, that's, I'm not a huge fan of great expectations. There are many other better Dickens novels, but I would really enjoy putting her in a room with these other women. And then for my final guest, I would invite Azraphel from good omens. Uh, I really feel like he would just not know what to do with any of these people. It would greatly amuse me. Uh, we could talk about old books, though, and it'd be good. I I like all of your picks, and I am so glad that we had you on as a guest. Like your picks say to me, we need to talk more about things because because that was just a, a point for point. I'm like, oh, that's a good pick. That's a good pick. That's a good pick. Thank you. So we're gonna have to have you on again, Hannah. Uh, if anyone of our listeners haven't listened over on the Vox Popcast, you often defend uh, The Good Place as the best show on television. So uh, I'm right there with you on, on that. Uh, with what's currently being produced, 
that is the top of the line for me. Actually, I believe last time you were on, I tried to convince you to stay as a main host because you agreed with me. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't have edit it so that you kept saying, uh, um, oh, what's the Riverdale. show that he loves is the best show on television? Riverdale. Oh. I was going to say Archie, but it's not Archie. Yeah, he, he, he argues Riverdale is the best show on television. Uh <laughs> He threatened to. Uh, he didn't, though. Um, in on a recent episode, he um, had Wayne, another co-host, record Virgil Dell's The Best Show on Television to just pop in because uh, he couldn't be there. So, But actually, I have to say that <laughs> Good Omens, maybe all the shows with good in them are just good shows. Good Omens um, on Amazon, it's now a mini series, not just a book, is also competing with The Good Place for a great show on television. Um, it's delightful. I have not watched it yet. I love the novel. Uh, Terry Pratchett, Neil Gaiman's novel, Good Omens. We've almost covered it on this podcast several times, but have never actually done it. So we need to do that. Uh, and I need to watch the Amazon Prime version. Yeah, it, it's one of my favorite novels. And the May series does it justice. Um, and really, like it, when the, it diverts from the novel, it adds a lot of good stuff. Well, I'm glad to hear that. All right. I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us, listeners. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 77 when we talked about Jane Eyre or episode number 80 when we talked about Pride and Prejudice. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at jdorowski and our producer, Andrew, is at dizminute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Hannah, would you like to remind listeners of where they can find uh, your other podcast or your podcast? Yes. <laughs> uh, I guess it's a fourth mine. Uh, you can visit www.voxpopcast.com um, and you can follow us on Twitter at VoxPopcast. And if you want to follow me, you can just follow me at Hanley Rogers. But I just tweet about good omens, so there's not really a point. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again for listening. And I, I would just say that is a good reason to follow you. That's not a reason not to follow you on Twitter. That is absolutely a reason to go follow you on Twitter. Uh, we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Is Andrew there? Andrew's gone. Oh, no. Oh, Andrew's gone. What happened? Oh, no. Andrew, where are you? I did not realize that he was gone.